So, hello, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, to myself and Tim Haynes, uh, Director General of BBC 2014 to 2019. I'm honoured to be here this, uh, to, to listen to Tim and have a conversation with Tim this morning, discussing basically a, a, bit, a bit of a post-match analysis of Sustainable Finance Week here in Guernsey uh, between the 9th and the 11th of June. Uh, what was an incredible fest, uh, feast, I should say, of webinars and podcasts and fringe events. I think altogether there was something in the region of ah, 15 different podcasts and webinars uh, um, during the course of the week. The theme of the event was financing sustainability in the post-COVID era and the role of private capital specifically. We had on day one Ben Caldicott of uh, Oxford Sustainable uh, Programmes and strategic advisors of the UK Green Finance Institute joined with Angelica Bardalai, um, the chief, uh, chief economist of City UK, discussing the macro picture of post-COVID and how we would finance a green recovery uh, and, and how private capital could feed into to that. Day two was the role of family offices. We were joined by sustainable uh, uh, finance investor John Moulton, a recovery uh, specialist uh, based here in Guernsey, uh, on the board of various uh, sustainable uh, funds, both listed and unlisted. And uh, David Bain, editor of Private Capital, and Turn Kwan, head of private wealth programs at the Zurich Institute of Sustainable Finance, to discuss the role of family office money and uh, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the finance and sustainability. And then day three, we had a private equity fest. We have Richard Burrett, strategic advisor to Earth Capital X, um, head of European EP, uh, United Nations, I should say, EP programs, financial institutions programs, and a professor at the uh, Cambridge Institute of Sustainability, uh, joined with Divya Shashami, uh, general uh, managing partner of Greensphere, a, a, a green PE fund, and also uh, on the Council of Sustainable Business for the UK and head of the Net Zero Initiative, and also somebody who you very well know very well, Tim, Capreet um, Ranku, the Deputy Director of the BVCA and Head of Policy for the discussion of how private equity uh, could help finance um, sustainability going forward in the post-COVID area. So that was then. Uh, this is now, Tim. I would just, you know, having given a bit of a, probably a, an overly long introduction to the week, uh, potentially, that's what we did. I've got my own views about some of the key themes. Um, really uh, pleased that you could join us for a sort of review of, of the week. Um, we had you know, hundreds of thousands of eyeballs and views, you know, hundreds on the webinars, um, you know, hundreds listening to the podcasts. Uh, but specifically from your individual perspective, maybe if we should start off what you thought were the key themes of the week uh, that came out of all of that discussion and dialogue. Well, firstly, Andy, a big shout to you and to Guernsey Green Finance for, for going ahead with the event. It would have been extremely easy, as so many other people have done with conferences of this sort, to have said, this is terribly inconvenient, let's do it in October. Um, it was really brave to do it the way you did it. But I think really important because it meant that the speakers and the podcast, I think, have captured the spirit of this quite extraordinary time. So to my mind, there are the three, at least three big things came out. Firstly, that everything has changed as a result of the crisis we're living through. It's not the case that, you know, uh, a light switch has been turned off. We've been obliged to sit in a dark room for a period of time. Then the light switch will be turned back on again and we'll carry on as we did before. There's an overwhelming spirit that came through the discussions that this is a much more seminal moment than that. Secondly, that there has to be a huge role for private capital going forwards. There will obviously be a very big and different role for public capital, 
but private capital has to be an essential part of the mix. And thirdly, I think those who are owners of capital, leaders of capital, those who have the capacity to direct capital need to exercise leadership. They can't sit there and wait for leadership to come to them. Some interesting points there, too. And uh, thank you very much. But yeah, before we move on for the for the kind words, it was a, a touch and go decision just after Easter. Would it be too soon? Would it be you know? Uh, would it be inappropriate? Um, and it was an awful lot of hard work behind the scenes from all of the team um, here in Guernsey. So thank you ever so much for recognising that. Um, you're absolutely right. I did I did get a huge sense that people were. Um, really, you know, everything was front and centre of their, of their mind. If we we talked about it before in 2019 and coming into 2020, I've got a real sense of no, you know, this this time it is different. This time we really do mean it in terms of uh, the need to in, embed sustainability in everything we do, and that that recognition of the huge role for private capital came out um, across each of the points. In fact, in our various um, polls that we conducted during the week you know it was you know it was a vast majority despite the the, you know, the, the possibly trillions of public finance we're talking about um in green recovery but i you know i just that, that was me and I'm, I'm sort of in this in in the circus tent sort of you know sort of uh, cheering out as it were can i just just double check with you this this new world order we keep talking about do you really think that people believe in it i mean you, you talked about the you know the, the capturing the spirit and everything changed um you don't think it's something that maybe is just will fizzle out over the course of a few months? No, I don't think so. I mean, I have a big interest in history. And one of the things that history teaches us about events such as this is that the ultimate beneficiaries for it are ideas and themes which pre-existed the event but hadn't quite crossed into the mainstream. So the aftermath of this event is not that we're going to do something completely random like, I know, give votes to cats or something. Uh, it's going to be the ideas that have been sort of mulled around and sort of were well, 45% of the way there, get the mm. extra boost over the line. They, they cross the tipping point and people say to themselves, actually what this has revealed is the degree to which our society and economy is much more fragile than we thought it was. So we have to think more deeply about sustainability. We have to think more deeply about the long term. We have to recognise that we aren't masters of the universe and we have to recast our own behaviour. So I think I remember in conversation um, immediately after, you, you, uh, one of my favourite books actually, but, but obviously there's a bit, bit more to it than a book title. You're talking about the feeling that we've possibly crossed a, unif a Rubicon in this respect. Yes, I think we have. I mean, and um, it was overdue in many ways, but um, you know, one of the things that you talked about it's throughout your various um, uh, podcasts and, and panels was that you did some survey work last year in which 51%, I think, if it was those surveyed were considering investing more in the sustainable investment space. But as you rightly said, that implied that 49% weren't. I would be amazed if you repeated that exercise this September and those numbers were still the same. I would be staggered if they hadn't moved to at least 70-30. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if they moved to eighty twenty. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think you know, if we did this to the same poll again, it'd be a staggeringly different result. Um, but I think one of the points that we we did in that survey is we, we sort of okay, so forty nine percent are still to be convinced, and we asked them what was the what was what they needed to be convinced, and it was concerns about the robustness of the product, you know, the underlying investment and the you know the integrity of what they're investing in, and it was also um, about returns. 
you know, and I've, you know, I've, I've shared platform with, with Sir Roger Gifford where, you know, he's, he's, he's been basically banging the drum and saying, this is not an either or option. This is about, you know, generating returns and doing good at the same time. And we picked up on it several times last week. I mean, um, what do you, your point on this, particularly post COVID about that, you know, the need to generate returns for private capital. Well, I mean, and both are, both are reasonable points, but products do exist. I mean, Kearns Guernsey has been a pioneer in terms of products uh, for a number of years now. So the argument that there's nothing on the shelf that I want to, might, might want to buy strikes me as not really very robust. I mean, you're, you're not looking hard enough at the shelf. Um, but returns, I mean, one of the most extraordinary statistics that came out the whole week, uh, I think, in uh, actually in the, the very first panel session, was that 2,200 academic surveys have been done about the relationship between sustainable finance and returns. And 93% of them demonstrate that there is no negative impact. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many more surveys people want to possibly read or know about. Um, you know, but I don't think increasing it to 4,400 rather than 2,200 is likely to move the needle. This is, this is a false debate. You can understand why people think to themselves, you can't do good and have reward, can you? That sounds like to think that's too good to be true. But actually, the evidence is there that intelligently done, there is no contradiction whatsoever between sustainable finance and sustainable reward. I, I completely agree. And, and I think... Um um, not, not to be pedantic, it, it was day two, it was Turn Quan from uh, the Zurich Institute which, uh, that referred to that, but it was a theme all the way through. Um, you know, ben Caldicott had made it, he'd had just published a paper about you know, pointing out that uh, it was in ESG with at the firm level pointed to greater, uh, you know, good ESG uh, characteristics at the firm level pointed to, to greater macroeconomic performance at the nation level. And Emily Shaw from uh, Capital Capital making exactly the same point. They're actually investors now shifting their portfolios and, and their investments in, in, into those areas precisely because, um, you know, green and ESG investing was, showed, was demonstrating a resilience through, and I wouldn't call it a cycle, it's probably a bit... A a uh, bit of a misnomer, but through the the crisis of COVID, as it were, the, you know, the, 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 the still was the resolute investing in in the um, uh, in those resilient products and investments was, would demonstrate a better return. Now that, but that the reason I mentioned the investing through the cycles is something that we, we uh, we've touched upon previously, and it came up particularly on the private equity panel on day three. Uh, was looking about that um, the fact that private capital has potentially. A, a better uh, or more suited investment horizon. Uh, obviously, there's the UK's Patient Capital Initiative, and I think you know, back to your days as, as, as DG at the BBC, it's something that you've you know returned to time and time again. Um, could you, I mean, expand on that point about what you see that, that what, what the, the conversation was about the, the potential for private capital to demonstrate the, the virtues of patients. Well, let's um, start with this almost philosophical point, um, Andy. Um, you, we refer to the cycle. Now, why do we think there are cycles in um, modern capitalist economies or have been cycles? It's largely because of short-term behaviour that causes excesses, both on the upside and on the downside. Actually, I think we should be asking ourselves whether or not we can reorganise our society, reorganise our economy, reorganise our, our investment thinking to have a much more smooth, I mean, you're never going to 
abolish excess one way or another way. But there are ways in which you can say to yourself, I would rather have a society which had a clearer and consistent growth rate rather than this tendency to gyrate motivated by very short-term investments. And the only way we're going to achieve that is by looking at investment from a longer-term perspective than one year, three year, five years. So I think the, the intellectual as well as the economic market for patient capital is very, very sizable. And I think the benefits are, are enormous. Um, I think um, up until now, people have tended to talk the talk, but not walk the walk, if you're being, if you're honest about it. They've, they've all agreed that patient capital is a fantastic virtue and rather hope that somebody else would do the actual investing in it. Um, I think we've now come to appreciate that that, that won't do as a model. <clears throat> we have to really, really think about the sorts of investments that are going to sustain not merely our economy and our society over the long term. You know, during the last 20 years, particularly in the venture capital space, and I'm an enormous fan of venture capital, but nonetheless, there's been a sort of a bit of stampede into sort of sexy bits of digital media. You know, yet another app that can tell you where the mm. best pub is within 500 meters. Uh, though they're all closed at the moment. Uh, and away from some of the really hardcore life science investments that are absolutely fundamental to the nature of human society, which you really, really should be encouraging, but which are going to take time. So that's that leadership point that you referred to previously. That's, that's going to be required in it with, within the time perspective. Exactly. Um, people have, who have very, very large amounts of money should be capable of thinking over the long term, whether that be individuals or whether that be pension funds, which should have a 100-year time scale. You know, they mm. shouldn't be motivated by the very, very short-term consideration, the very abstract consideration of what would happen if I had to pay out all, that, all the money tomorrow. That's not the real-world situation we're in. And, and on that point, I mean, we've, again, it, it came up, and you just touched on it, like this, the philosophical issues about this, so sort of the relationship between public and private capital. Um, you sort of said that needs to be some deep thinking. What do you, what do you think would be, you know, a, a potential avenue for for exploration in that respect? If, um, sort of in terms of product development, that yeah, the products exist currently. But let's not assume that they're they're perfect. There's, there's, is there is there a scope for development that could um, make a uh, a different time horizon more appropriate? Well, I th first of all, I think we need to be start with a bit of bit of honesty. That public capital and private capital haven't always had the easiest of relationships. Uh, there have been times when public capital has tried to more or less muscle out private capital um, in, in certain spheres because it doesn't believe that private capital is sincerely committed to it. There have been other times when private capital has treated public capital with an element of contempt or the view that governments don't have a fantastic track record about delivering results over the long term and they don't really understand the nature of markets and the nature of products. Um, we can't carry on having that rather kind of love-hate relationship or frequently sometimes a hate-hate relationship. We have to try, try and create circumstances, especially thinking about the challenges ahead, in which not only can public and private capital coexist in the sense of marking out their own territories in a harmonious way, but can co-invest together. That some of the really big things that we need to discover are going to require the mobilization of very large sums of money from both sources. And thus far, I don't think there's really been uh, an effort at leadership about working out how you can put these two, which should not be hostile, two forces together to achieve fundamental objectives 
about creating a, a more sustainable economy, a healthier kind of economy, and in many ways, a more enjoyable economy which to live. <laughs> it brings a smile to my face thinking about a more enjoyable economy, actually, because at the end of the day, I, I think I was brought up with being, you know, being promised that the future was going to be better than, than the past. And, you know, that's effectively what we're, what we're trying to do as, as a human race. Um, but we do get quite, um, you know, away with the fairies on some of these points. But, but on that, I'm just going to sort of segue massively across now to, to a point about talking about the future is that one thing that came up, um, during the course of, of, the, of the week that, uh, not on everyone's radar, but it certainly was on Divya's, was the uh, the point about systemic risk issues, as in concerns for the future. And it's where you come to this the long-term horizon uh, matter, particularly with pension funds. Um, do you see the uh, a greater appreciation of systemic risk being something that you know people are still need educating on? Or, or do you think it's with, with climate change from last year, it, people have bought into it and that COVID has demonstrated that and we don't need to worry about the case being made anymore? Well, a case is never won unless it's constantly re-argued. But I do think that reasonable people across the board will now appreciate that systemic risk has to be taken in a broader rather narrower term. So I think a lot of our discussion about systemic risk up to now has been quite narrow. It's been about sort of certain sorts of institutions, particularly those connected to the financial system. It's been strongly coloured by the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, which is entirely understandable. That was a classic systemic failure. But it's quite a narrow definition of it. After all, I mean, if, if, if we just step aside from those of a more conspiratorial ilk as to where this crisis came from, uh, I'll go with the, the convention. <laughs> what we have discovered in the past six months is that a single sickly bat can close down the global hospitality and leisure industry. Mm. Now, that seems to me to imply a society and a system of risks that is much broader, much more fundamental than the way we've thought about these things up until now. That systemic risk really has to think about all sorts of systems, of which climate is obviously one of the most enormous systems. I mean, if our climate goes wrong, the fact that we might have shored up the banks is of limited gain. So we have to think much more deeply about how you know, the 8 billion people on this planet coexist with each other and how, whilst keeping things that we want to keep, you know, I don't want a world in which no one ever travels, um, we nonetheless think more carefully about the nature of risk and what we do to be more risk-averse, how we think about how we ensure risk, how we act to minimise risk, then up until now, it's been a rather cavalier view that basically kind of man is Superman and with the occasional blip in the system we'll, that we'll correct somehow afterwards. Yes, we can't all get a, um, a space on Elon's uh, ship to Mars, can we? So there, there's risks that really do need to be brought uh, front and centre. Um, that was a good, that's a very, you know, that, I, obviously I couldn't articulate it any better than yourself about that, that, that learning post-COVID about it had brought home the need to um, to sort of to focus on a holistic sense of risk. I was chuckling because uh, of what my my son, having gone back to school, uh, was was coming back with on the on the the route in uh, to drop offs, uh, some of the various conspiracy theories from the playground. So uh, time for a conversation for another day. But uh, and I just want to come back 
while we're talking about that need for systemic risk and, and leadership that you referred to. And we had a, um, it was a witticism during the week where David said about the, you know, is it going to be billionaires that save the planet? You've talked about leadership. Um, and we've talked about the need for uh, public and private capital to work together. Do you, in terms of direct investments and how, in the minutiae of the day-to-day, how, in, in the very short term, you can see the, the proliferation of private capital being um, being deployed? Um, do, you, do you see investment driving demand? Or do you, or, and are there any areas you think that we picked up on the week where there are actually shortcomings, there is a need for a better development. You picked up on the products at the moment, and there are them out there, but off the shelf, quite frankly, uh, not everyone's aware of them. Um, no, no, I think awareness is the key issue here. I mean, personally, I'm a bit queasy about this, that this race billionaires will save the planet, um, partly because I, I don't think it's the, big, big, the greatest marketing slogan I've ever heard, <laughs> and partly because I think it implies that the rest of us can sort of, you know, sort of sit in the garden and wait until they do it. I think all of us have to save the planet in our own different ways. But obviously, people who have disproportionate resource have the potential to have disproportionate impact. And what I thought was very interesting out of the, the many discussions they had, particularly amongst those who were thinking about how the family office universe and the high net, high net worth interview, high net wealth community might respond to events, is I think there, there's, there's, there's an itch amongst that sort of fraternity, partly because uh, you know, they, they are instinctive dynamic people towards direct involvement with impact investment. Um, if you're going to try and hit the ball, um, try and hit the ball out of the ground, and I think there's a quite strong sense that both impact and other areas which are fundamental to humanity, such as life sciences um, uh, and climate, um, that the people want to get directly involved, or if they're not going to get directly involved, they need to go through indirect forums, funds, in which, or products, in which they have a great deal of confidence. Uh, and I think that's going to be sort of forward. I mean, I think there's a sense that the impact and direct investment is sort of the hardware here, and some of the ESG stuff, worthy though it is, it's more software. And I think that, they, that the hardware issues are around direct involvement, possibly on a co-invest basis, sometimes via specialist products in which people are convinced that, 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 that actually that will make a bigger impact than themselves going in solo. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I sense that I sense an itch to itch to be involved. Hmm. I think um, that I think we did a poll, didn't we? It was uh, the jury was out whether it was billionaires or governments that are going to save the planet. But you're absolutely right. Uh, it's it's down at the the onus is on every single person to do their bit. You know, we can't leave it to others, uh, quite frankly. And but that point about impact, uh, about about making a difference and making a change, was I thought was a was an interesting one, and the, the measurement of impact. Um, and again, it came to Turn's point about the need for um, advisors to be able to explain, uh, and the shortage of advisors being able to explain how investments can make an impact. Um, in terms of, I'll, come, I'll finish shortly with a wraparound around day three, which is bringing it back to private equity. So that was a very interesting conversation. And we, we had the discussion about the, the, PE, the current PE business model. You referred to the fact that there's potential for a future change. But the current PE model being um, apt to investing, you know, or the, one of the most apt models of investing in, in this area going forward. But similarly, uh, there still was a, a need broadly amongst the, the GPNL community uh, to understand 
um, some of the processes or just you know a little bit of guidance um, as to what to do. I mean, we we published our green PE principles shortly before the conf- uh, before the conference in itself, specifically because of that, because because of the need for you know basically sort of like the you know, the guidance one hundred and one. How much do you think, in terms of uh, right here, right now? Um, do you think that the private equity industry uh, could um, could could re- could benefit um, from from the current situation? Well, I think I make two points. The first, I think you're you're absolutely right about the advisory community. And to be honest, the valley of ignorance here is still long and deep, as in terms of fully understanding the opportunities and the sectors. And that's a really really important missing part. I mean, it's a hugely hugely important thing over the next six months, year, two years, three years, that we expand the knowledge of what is out there and what is possible, and that we highlight those like you know, Green Finance, who actually put, put their money on the table early uh, and show that it was entirely possible to devise products and have a life thinking that was different. But the advisory community desperately needs to catch up because I think you know, we're going to have a lot of people with a lot of money in the private space who want to do something after this month, accept the arguments about the long term, but they need help to get from A to B. So the advisory community writ large is going to have to play catch up fast. Um, private equity has the virtue that it's raised an awful lot of money before the crisis struck. So it's, it's sitting on large stockpiles of cash. It has the virtue of being agile and flexible because it doesn't have to worry about sort of the short-termism and quarterly reporting and the sort of slightly bizarre media scrutiny that the public markets uh, have to operate under. Uh, and it has a historic record of having done really rather well out of crisis, to be honest. Um, oh. you know, when I was director general of the BBCA, um, I, I used to avoid saying this on a public forum because it sounded didn't sound terribly good. But the truth was that the private equity industry um, really, really did very, you know, really did have a good global financial crisis. Um, you know, its attributes came to the fore. It was able to take a low interest rate environment and it was able to make a number of very, very astute investments and do very well for itself. Now, I didn't particularly like saying that on a public forum, to be honest, Andy, because it sounds like saying I've had a really good black death. Yeah. Um, but, the, 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 but the truth is that the historic record of private equity is that it does adapt to crisis quickly. It does sense that markets have changed. It does sniff out opportunity. It is, it is inquisitive and opportunistic like that. And, you know, I am sure that there will be numerous examples when we look back in five years' time where people who've made bold moves in the aftermath of crisis are disproportionately associated with the private equity model. Mm. And I think, to be frank, you're absolutely right. But the point being is, is that whether we like things or not, it's, it's important to learn what works. And the fact that the PE model can actually provide you know, a little bit of that leadership that you were talking about previously, but also demonstrate uh, an ability to invest in the right areas that the economy will need going forward to make it a more uh, sustainable economy, I think was one of the, for me, the big takeaways out of it is that actually what we brought together last week was you know, people who have been possibly at the more, you know, the stormtroopers, as it were, at the forefront of ensuring that capital had been rooted, particularly the private variety, had been rooted uh, to these types of investment previously. And we were trying to learn from them uh, about how that would could be improved going forward. And I, I will I will summarise some of the points I think you've made, Tim, but before I do, 
I just want to talk about that going forward thing. We we finished on the last day with a quick question about COP26, which obviously has been delayed for obvious reasons from this year to next. Do you see, I mean, Mark Kearney had talked about when he was first appointed as strategic advisor by the UK government for this, when he stepped down from the Bank of England, um, talking about the private capital being a big theme uh, for COP26. Now, when Mark talks about it, I think he, he means anything that's not public, whereas we talk about private capital, we're talking about a possible subset of there. Do you think we, you know, as, as a... As a um, we as, a, as, as a, an industry, as a movement, should be looking towards ensuring that there is a, a, a serious platform for private capital in COP26 next year? Absolutely, because I think the, the stakes have massively been raised by recent events for COP26. So people, especially with the advantage of a year's delay, people will not be expecting this to be yet another mundane international summit that produces worthy but very, frankly very aspirational kind of statements at the end of it uh, and a sense of a sort of global talking shop. Um, you know, there is an immense urgency around change in the 2020s. Yeah, we, won't, we won't have another decade in which to twiddle our thumbs or think about it. This has to be the decade of transformation. And the COP26 event, not the greatest of names, I must say, I think I called in the marketing department on that, but the COP26 event has to be utterly defining. It has to be the sort of thing, you mentioned your, your, your son, it has to be the sort of thing that he remembers when he's 80. If we miss out on this, then we are basically condemning another generation to a deeper set of the same problems, and it will get harder and harder to solve. So private capital really has to roll up its sleeves on this one. It has to be as deeply involved as the public sphere is about thinking about how we reorder our economy and society to be much more long-term in its focus and much more aware that the definition of risk is a bigger one than we have hitherto operated on. Well, Tim, I mean, I, I think you've sort of distilled that down perfectly for us there. Um, we appreciate that you started off by saying that maybe we caught the spirits of the, of, you know, uh, with ourselves in Guernsey uh, just a week before last. But I think you're absolutely right. If, if COP26 can capture the spirit of the age for us, um, it is our once in a lifetime opportunity. So, just to summarise that, if, you know, to put words into your mouth, but they were your own words. But you know, in terms of a notion, it's really appreciative of that discussion. I think it's a takeaway from ourselves that from the week in our discussion is that you know, we've demonstrated that. Everything has changed, um, you know, and, and like you say, that a Rubicon has been crossed and hopefully that Rubicon will lead to, to, to greater and, and better things in COP26 next year and going forward. Demonstrating, I think the conversation was that there is a massive role for private capital, despite the billions and trillions talked about in terms of public capital. Um, everybody that we spoke to sort of, you know, was absolutely front and centre that private capital really needed to take a a leading role in this and you captured that point with saying that you know there is a need for for owners of private wealth to demonstrate leadership on this to demonstrate their commitment to to impact and the the, the consensus clearly being that the the role of private capital or the, the the dna the nature of private capital with its longer term investment horizon was very apt to be um to be investing in this field and to, and to demonstrate, uh, to, to, to clarify for others to follow. And that, that the, but the, the relationship perhaps between public and private capital could change and maybe the need for a, a longer term harassment horizon, a, a method of bringing 
bringing the two parties together in in, uh, in into sort of structures jointly, um, and that long term uh, sort of uh, uh, horizon also with the fact that. Um, the demonstration that you know returns and the resilience of the model of the private equity was apt to it was already you know is already pretty and pretty pretty apt to this environment. Well, the second way being that the, the notion of risk has changed, and yes, yeah, so we might have been talking about systemic risk, but one of the probably the defining lessons of COVID is that our concept and our understanding of risks needs to be a bit more um, broader uh, and basically fundamentally central. So Tim, that's, that was for me the takeaways, and it was it was great to have this conversation with you with with you again today. Looking forward to sort of carrying on this conversation with you over the summer. Um, it's brilliant um, to be uh, uh, to, to be working with you on this. Um, and I just like to say thank you very much again for you know bringing together and distilling it down and some of the basic the, the, the fundamental lessons for us of sustainable finance week. That, you know, we've crossed the Rubicon. There's a, a massive role for, for private capital. The long-term horizon um, it, it is perfectly suited to private wealth and, and private equity. The relationship may be uh, changing, but it's good already. Uh, but there's potential for development of products and services. And thank you ever so much for you know for acknowledging that we've uh, here in Guernsey we've been. We've been trying to uh, advocate this this format of investing for a long time, obviously with our uh, regulated uh, fund regime and our PE principles that we recently published. But there is much more to do. Uh, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the educational exercise, the briefing of advisors, the, uh, the, the education of GPs and LPs is still a lot of work to do. And I'm really glad um, that, you know, somebody of your, your stature and ilk is, uh, is, is out there shouting from the rooftops trying to, you know, convert the, the, all of the owners of private wealth uh, to the course. So thank you very much, Tim. Thank you very much, Andy. And you're quite right. There is an enormous amount of work to do. But isn't the prize enormous too? Absolutely. Thank you.